Hello. Hey, I've got I've got a question for you. Oh no. Is it about my audio? No. Is it about Skype? No. It's it's it, it's a simple question, Ben. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. Is is it okay to, <laughs> to eat a dead lobster? <laughs> it is Don. I'd rather eat a dead lobster than a live lobster. <laughs> well, depends on the lobster. It depends. Have you seen the lobster? You should, you should see the lobster. Um, oh, we're gonna get we're gonna get to that. I have a question for you. Oh, we're not gonna talk about. I was no. trying to, to preempt anything. No, uh, with the lobster discussion. But go we're ahead. We're gonna talk about lobster, but um, and I'm gonna do this is we're, this is what they call a, a teaser in the in the business. Mm. Um, is it okay to make a knife out of your own poop? <laughs> Well, what if what if you had a what if you had a knife made from your own poop and you used it to kill a lobster? I'd kill a lobster, yeah. Would that yeah. be okay? I think that'd be okay. I think. Oh, I am I'm I am I am all in on dead lobsters and uh, knife poop. So yeah, let's go for it. Oh poop my gosh, knife. poop knife. Um, I so uh, but yeah, yeah. We, let's let's do that. I I'm I'm uh, we started this a little bit early because I got finished a a meeting that uh, was scheduled for two hours. Um, and it was the, um, you know, what, what are they, is it called an enclave when they, when they select a new Pope? What is that called? You know, that thing, um, you know, I'm not sure. I think they're waiting for white smoke. Right, right. It. The oh. white smoke thing. What, not the, not the white smoke monster from lost, <laughs> but, uh, but white smoke and they, you know, there's black smoke, black smoke, and then yay, white smoke. And we got a new Pope. That's, that's as close to Catholicism. <laughs> well, not, maybe he's your Pope. <laughs> it's not my Pope. Have you seen the Pope? Have you seen the other Pope? Have you, <laughs> Does, does does the does the bear uh, is the is the bear Catholic? Is, it, uh, is, it, is that how the joke goes? Yeah. Does the lobster is the is the lobster a bear? Um, all right. So I just did. I just finished a uh, a two hour meeting of uh, the, of Pope Safety Talk. Um, oh no! Really? We, we just did a we did the oh the, oh did yeah, was the, the academic was the, thing was was the was the smoke white? That's what I want. Yeah, to know. yeah. You, well, you probably I, can't say. I can't tell you. I can't tell you. I'm just telling you there was smoke, and and I can't tell you the, the uh, color of it. But we we just uh, finished a super secret meeting of uh, 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 promotion and tenure and reappointment and and all that kind of stuff. And it's and it is a dra- it's a draining conversation every time, even e- even when when you don't think it's going to be. And it finished early, which was great. Um, and that's why we're doing this early because I also have a heart out for another uh, meeting um, in a couple hours. But um, but I'm I'm uh, I'm on um, I'm on my second uh, triple latte of the day. So that, so so for those of you who are at home counting, that's six shots of espresso that are uh, coursing through my veins and and, and maybe not surprisingly um, in my kidneys. Um, so <laughs> so right now. I'm good. Well, well, if the if the espresso is literally in your kidneys, <laughs> oh, we got trouble. Be dead. Let's hope. Let's hope that only proper kidney fluids are coursing yeah. through your kidneys. Well, uh, let's call them the uh, uh, espresso uh, um, uh, metabolites are are in my uh, are, are in my kidney. I think that's the the correct think, yeah, way to go. I, isn't the liver? Isn't the? Uh, well, I don't. I, I, we yeah. We should we should talk What's to somebody about. Yeah. What's well, what whatever. <laughs> I mean, the point is the point is that you've had caffeine. Um, I've had caffeine oh. uh, less less than you, but but I've had I've had caffeine. Um, I have just about finished listening to the um, uh, um, uh, Dubai Friday After Dark uh, from this week's episode, and so I'm already kind of in a loopy mood uh, awesome. from that. So uh, it was very it was very good. So I've got um, so op, for offset reasons, I won't tell you exactly where I'm going. 
uh, <laughs> but I think I said it at the end of the last podcast. But today I, I go from uh, smoke meeting number one to podcast to uh, meeting number two. Uh, no, to regular non-smoke meeting number two. Uh, no, number one. And then uh, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> so confused. I know. You, you, I hope you have a chart out. Uh, <laughs> no. And, and then I'm back here for a second smoke meeting uh, for, oh. for other people. Yeah, we got two. We got Jeez. two smoke meetings today. Whoa. Yeah. Wait, and, and the first smoke meeting had three people in it. First smoke meeting had three people. And then uh, the second smoke meeting's got one. Wow. Um, Gee yeah. whiz. Yep. Uh, and then we uh, – and then I then I go home uh, for for a short amount of time, maybe uh, an hour, and then I uh, change and shower, and then I take a, a, an Uber to the airport, and I get on a plane to go somewhere um, and meet my family who left. Uh, they're leaving now. They're Ooh. different flights. Um, I know. If you can say, is I this can. hockey related? It is not. No, I'm going. So. Um, uh, uh, Listeners of the podcast, if this is your first episode, go back and listen to uh, (laughs) – good luck, first of all. Start with with episode zero. Yeah, start with episode zero. No, go back and listen to Live from Reston um, uh, and uh, whatever episode number that was uh, from a couple episodes back. I am uh, on my way to uh, lovely, or I believe lovely, Hawaii, Honolulu, uh, to teach a retail HACCP class all week next week. And my family is coming with me because it's – it's Hawaii, and uh, why not bring your your kids and, and family uh, and wife uh, to to Hawaii when you get to go? So we we're leaving. They've already left. Um, we're gonna hang out for a couple of days uh, on Oahu, and then I'm gonna teach all week, and they're gonna go snorkel, and then uh, we're gonna stay there next weekend, and then fly back uh, a week from uh, Monday, something like that. Cool. Well, well, I uh, you know I just was reading an article about you should never uh, put on social media that you're traveling, right? Um, um, and I also, for OPSEC reasons, um, I'm also going to be traveling, but I won't say where and I won't say when. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and I'm Good. Gonna, and, and my wife will probably put stuff on, on social media. So hopefully the criminals aren't looking at that. So. Do you think – I mean so criminals could be looking for it. What, what kinds of things <laughs> – I don't think there's anything in my house that criminals could, could take that I would – I don't know. I guess I wouldn't want them to burn it down. But we well, also well, – he, Here's the thing, Ben. You and I should probably both spend some time now listing all the things that criminals might want might to take want. from our house yeah, 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 in yeah, case yeah. anyone's listening. Yeah. Oh, this – if Merlin listens to this episode, his head will explode. <laughs> kind of like uh, um, what he thinks that Syracuse uh, is going to do every time he starts t- talking to John Roderick about uh, how to fix his computer. Uh, <laughs> So um yeah sorry sorry if we're if we're making heads explode on this one. Uh yeah so so anyway um I'm I'm hopped up on six sis six not sis sis espressos six espressos <laughs> sis and trans espressos. White, yeah. Both both white, of white sis espressos. White sis espressos. Uh uh so let's do this. Let's let's talk about lobsters. Um and so we there, there's some stuff I want to talk about um in the in in the uh in our show notes um but the the first thing um comes from uh um deep lobster listener to the show deep lobster and um i'm i'm going to read it's a, it's an email that um that we uh that we got and we'll for, we will uh, protect the innocent so deep lobster asks us um, this question came to me today and I immediately thought that you might uh, like to have a little fun with this one on FST. Um, bullet number one, a restaurant was recently questioned by a health inspector for having a dead lobster in their tank of what were supposed to be live ones destined for cooking. And I was asked to provide insights on this. My response 
bullet number two, uh, generally was that I didn't think it posed much of a public health risk at all, though the thought might turn off a consumer during uh, due to a yuck factor perception. Lobsters as raw animals, uh, either dead or alive, will carry bacteria, and the water will provide a good medium for growth, though the water temperature is kind of cool, I believe. From a pure health risk standpoint, I'd not worry about this one too much. But in trying to find it, I did find honey, funny, funny headlines like, is it okay to eat a dead lobster? Well, I'd hope so. Aren't they all dead when we eat them? <laughs> You know, it took me several minutes of processing that to actually get the point that yeah, the yeah. lobster was making. But but uh, she makes a good point. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then uh, finally, is there a regulatory <clears throat> risk um, to this? And and I guess, you know, what, what I think Deep Lobster is asking is there is there a regulatory um, framework or response if someone was to walk in and find a dead lobster in a in a shellfish tank? So so go you go go ahead and I'm going to talk about how I approach this one. But you. you yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so I've got, and there, there, we kind of, I went through a couple of rounds for reasons that are are not completely clear. I just occasionally I just get interested in something, and I guess it's because I'm procrastinating something. And I, if I had something really important to do, I would have done it. But so anyway, so this this consumed a fair bit of my time googling and and, and responding to this email, which which I guess is theoretically uh, my job. But but uh, so anyway, so I think the first the first thing that occurred to me is how what do we know about how long the lobster has been dead right and and what what immediately flashed in my mind is we've been watching um episodes of silent witness and <laughs> which we've talked of course, about of course. before yeah. and they have a, a in new in this season there's a forensic guy lobster um, witness look <laughs> a, a new forensic guy and he um he always uh, is, is, you know, if the body's dead, they always want to know time of death. And he's always talking about the insects, right? And which insects have gotten into the body. And so, you know, it just obviously once something dies, <clears throat> nature begins to take over. And so, um, so that was my first, my first thought. Um, and, and and my point was, I don't want to eat any um, uh, not so recently dead lobster, right? Because of course, anytime you eat lobster, it's hopefully it's going to be dead. Um, uh, but you know, obviously if the lobster has been dead a while and it started to decay, um, that's going to be spoiled lobster. And I'm sure that's not, not good. It's, it's again, it's yuck factor, right? It's not necessarily food safety. Um, and then I got thinking about this whole regulatory risk, right? And so I did a little bit of digging and, and the first thing, and of course, you know, this, if it's a, if it's a lobster tank in a restaurant, which we will definitely get to, um, there's, there, there's a whole, a uh, whole bunch of things that we can talk about, but that was not my first thought. My first thought was when I just, when I Googled this, I found something from, um, the seafood HACCP. Uh, guidance of FDA. And this is information that's not for restaurants. It's for people that are processing seafood. And, and what, and we'll link to this, we'll link to this document, but what the what the what the what the Q and A page says is, uh, does holding lobsters in a lobster pound constitute holding as defined in the HACCP regulation? Okay, um, and, and in fact the answer is yes. So if you're a commercial lobster processor and you're holding live lobsters prior to processing, um, the, the answer from FDA is that yes, the the practice of holding live lobsters until they're marketed is a form of processing as defined by the regulations, and so. Consequently, still reading from the webpage, lobster pounds are subject to the sanitation and HACCP requirements of the regulation. At a minimum, safety concerns to consider in the development of HACCP plans for these operations include water quality and use of animal drugs. So obviously, 
If you're holding a lot of lobsters in a confined environment, they may be more susceptible to disease. You may be you may be treating treating them. Uh, there's uh, uh, time periods where you can you can treat them, and then you have to hold them, you know, to the drugs clear out of their system. Of course, the water quality can be can be suspect, and so so that that's basically the the, the first uh, my first comment in response to uh, in response to uh, deep lobster, um, and then. Um, <clears throat> The other point is, uh, let's see. So I, I found something. I found something on Ben a website uh, uh, called lo lobsters .org. Um And so I did. I did some research um, for a company that w it wanted to get into the business of shipping live lobsters, and and they had the same question about live versus dead lobsters. Um, and so uh, I, I'm just amazed that there is a website out there called lobsters.org that has information. <clears throat> on how to ship live lobsters. So if you ever have wondered how to ship live lobsters, uh, we will link to the webpage on lobsters.org, um, which talks about uh, all of the unique considerations in shipping live lobsters. And and again, I've got a part two, uh, but but I'll let you yeah. talk for a bit. No, no. So um, so where I started, and there was a couple of questions um, that, that came to me um, from, from Deep Lobster and you about this. And where I started was um, this question about molluscan shellfish tanks. And, and molluscan, although um, lobster is not a molluscan shellfish tank, there is some information in the, in the food code about molluscan shellfish tanks, uh, and they require a variance. And, and, it, and why they require a variance, this one, I, I do have some, some info on this. And I, you, you would ask me a question if I've ever seen a HACCP plan for one of these. I haven't. We don't, we don't believe we have any active molluscan shellfish tanks here in North Carolina. When we were in Seattle uh, or in Renton, the Seattle area, a few weeks ago, um, this was something that, that I did see in uh, a couple of grocery stores as I toured around. They exist out there. Um, and in some regulatory authorities don't like kind of strike this and say, no, you don't have to have a, a HACCP plan. But, but essentially for these, if, you, if you're going to have it, um, and, and the reason why molluscan shellfish tanks, and, and I realize that we're talking about deep lobster here um, and not, not deep oyster, but the reason why molluscan shellfish tanks um, require a HACCP plan is because those, those mollusks, mollusks are sometimes going to be destined to be consumed raw when someone takes them home. And so the um, transfer of pathogens from that tank from batch to batch, from you know shellfish, uh, um, uh, I, I think they, they talk about um, uh, uh, keeping shellfish tags and not you know, you know knowing that if you establish a pathogen into that tank, that you have to do cleaning and sanitizing of that tank so it's not just like persisting in there uh, from a cross contamination risk. That's the focus. But lobster is different because lobster is not destined to be cooked or destined to be eaten raw. I, and I'd say that in, in you know knowing that that there are, for for every time we've got a rule there are going to be some exceptions someone out there is eating raw lobster right now and not the B52's rock lobster um, I'm talking about actual raw lobster, but, but all of the food code stuff is really focused on that is this raw, um, raw aspect of it. So then I did a little more Googling, um, for it. And, and what I really came down to was where, where you kind of started, which was how long has the, has the lobster been dead and what's the temperature? And this is kind of an interesting one because it's not well, um, I, it's not not defined, I would say, in anything that I could find in the regulatory documentation. And there is a nice um, 
document that we'll link to info in show notes from Maricopa County. Call out to Maricopa County in, in Arizona because they, I think, have won a million awards for being really progressive. They do a great job on social media. Um, they they have uh, won the Crumbine Award uh, a couple of times, uh, I believe, which is you know the um, MVP award for top uh, health department. Um, but they have a really nice fact sheet from their environmental health on wet storage of live aquatic animals, and they. Um, they talk about live fish, crab, lobster, shrimp, and molluscan shellfish. And in this document, they say um, uh, holding temperatures. This is right at the bottom if you're following along at home. <clears throat> molluscan shellfish, live and called molluscan shellfish, shall be held at 41 or below. Other live aquatic animals do not require refrigeration below 41F, but should be held at optimal water temperature for that animal. Examples. Crab, 50 degrees. Lobster, 40 degrees to 50 degrees. So are we in a, in a, in a spot that if this, if, if this lobster has a, a pathogen associated with it, that it could grow? Yeah. Um, are we getting growth of pathogens in that, um, in that tank? Yeah, I would say so, right? Like, and, and to uh, Deep Lobster's point, um, water, water itself, doesn't have, um, you know, it's, it's not maybe a great substrate for growth, but water that's got live lobster and some lobster food and some lobster poop and other organic stuff. If there's a pathogen in there and we're at 48 degrees or 50 degrees, I would expect that you would get some, some growth, um, in there, but, but all of this, um, kind of goes away, uh, from a, from a safety standpoint, because again, I'm, I, I am making the assumption, and I think that most of our um, environmental health folks are making the assumption that this lobster is destined to be cooked. So back to you. So <clears throat> I guess this, so are, are lobsters molluscan shellfish? No. Okay. Because so they're crustaceans. Oh, they're crustacean shellfish. So, but, but there are, there are rules about lobster tanks in restaurants, right? Or, or are there? I, they're, they're not. Yeah. So I mean, I, so where I and I should say they're they're not. They they would there. There's not anything in the food code that I'm aware of that calls out lobster tanks um, specifically. And they they really are a live animal holding pen that right. your goal is to keep that that product alive and not you know I, I think you would have to follow. Um, you, you can't be making that product. Uh, uh, I, and I will use the wrong terms because I'm not in my my food code brain. You can't adulterate that product, right? Like it's not something that you would say, "Oh yeah, we've got mold growing on it," or or there's a you know there's a problem with it. But it's it to me, it's no different than if I. Well, I was gonna say it's no different than if I happen to have a goat that I have outside, and then I'm gonna slaughter that goat uh, and then cook it at my restaurant. Um, there, we don't have anything about like how I should treat that goat before it gets here. And, and, and so, so no, it's, it's, it is something that, that I think is, is outside of the regular, it's not, it's not a molluscan shellfish. It's a, <clears throat> it's crustacean. So, so all of those, all of those web pages that I found are not, are not really relevant to solving this problem. Correct. Correct. They are relevant to solving a different problem, which is I want raw oysters and I want right. to sell those raw oysters 
uh, or raw muscles or raw scallops. And, you know, we, we can think back to, a um, you know, multiple illnesses, uh, and, and outbreaks linked to, to raw oysters. Um, and, and I guess famously for, for me, uh, as I go to, to Hawaii, uh, over the next few days, um, a, a, an outbreak, uh, of sushi, scallop sushi, raw, um, raw scallop sushi. Uh, sorry, the, um, my words are not working. It was an outbreak of salmonella linked to raw scallop sushi. But, but yeah, so all molluscan shellfish is, is mollusks, and then we're talking about crustaceans. Oh, you know what I did find, though, in, the, in this last page, which I'm having difficulty <clears> – it <throat> it'll be a challenge to provide, to provide a link in the uh, – I guess we could do it. Uh, it. It'll take a little bit of work. It, anyway, it's, it's oh, a it's link like a to weird, a Word, a yeah, word yeah. document. Yep. Um, but all it says – and this is, the, this is information from – California Conference California, of Directors. Of course. Directors California. of Environmental Health. Yep. Um, and so what that document says is never hold molluscan. Well, first of all, it says never, never. and then there's two spaces after never, um, uh, and then hold. So the, obviously this document has not been carefully edited. <clears throat> but anyway, um, <laughs> never hold molluscan shellfish, clams, oysters, mussels, scallops in the same life support tank with crustacean shellfish, lobsters, crabs, shrimp. Yep. But they never. Yeah, I mean, and so all of the advice is really more for for molluscan shellfish, not for crustacean shellfish. Right, right, right. But, but I, I've got to think that the advice, the general, the general advice about molluscan shellfish would also pertain to how you would run a support tank for a crustacean shellfish. But but so apparently, then, if you if you are a restaurant and you have a tank for crustacean shellfish, it's not covered by the food code. Correct. That's yeah. Jeez, that yeah, seems yeah. like an oversight. Well, and and I, I I don't know, and let's you know let let's uh, um, put the call out to because people love it when we do this, right? <laughs> um, and and uh, see previous episode uh, talking about water testing. Um, oh, well, people, we we have to get to that too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but I I mean I think we're we're in a situation here where there I, there may be some stuff that apply to lobster tanks. Or fish tanks, right? Like, I mean, this, this is that—that that was the analogy that I was—I I think it's better, right? If I have a fish tank and I'm keeping all this live fish, um, and, and I'm keeping them alive, and then I'm gonna, you know, harvest them and kill them and and serve them as part of my meal. Um, yeah, I'm following the basic general aspects of the food code about. Controlling cross-contamination, controlling allergens, controlling um, contamination from a raw, raw food and its surroundings, in this case, the actual water that's living in, and, um, and, and, and the, um, you know, the ready-to-eat foods. So all of those things are in place, but, but there aren't specific call-outs to here is how you manage a lobster pen or lobster tank. And, and, and really, there isn't – I mean – to go to Deep Lobster's question, I mean, if we let's let, let's reel it back to this to this um, the the original question is, is there you know and and it's bullet number one. A restaurant was recently questioned by a health inspector for having a dead lobster in their tank of what were supposed to be live ones destined for cooking. And so, what's the what's the food safety risk of that? There's probably not a huge food safety risk, but there's definitely a gross. Yuck factor risk. Um, if a lobster is dead and it starts to decay, um, then that is going to lead to higher levels of microorganisms being in the water. Um, I suppose if the lobster died or ha had pathogens, human pathogens on it, 
and that those were being spread in the water, that would increase the level of pathogens on the live lobsters. And, and then there might be a cross-contamination risk or, um, you know, I guess if they were lightly cooked. I mean, so so maybe there's a risk elevation, but it's certainly it's certainly not a common thing and it's not anything that that we would normally think about. It's again, it's more a sanitation and a yuck factor thing. Right, right, right. Absolutely. And and I, I did a bunch of Googling on this and couldn't find anything that would that would suggest there was um, like and, uh, my, my analogy for this was about um, uh, holding fish out of temperature when they're you know, when they're dead uh, and bacteria that will then create histamine in their uh, in their meat, I couldn't find anything like that that was related to uh, to lobster, right? So that histamine production, I think, is um, is important in things like tuna. Hang on, I'll make sure. I get it's certain species, right. yeah, yeah. It's, it's really only certain species of fish, um, and as far as I know, um, uh, no mollusks or shellfish um, uh, can cause histamine poisoning. Right, right. It's yeah, um, and so there, I'll link to this um, kind of seminal um, uh, article. Uh, from 1979, from S. L. Taylor and uh, and and folks and colleagues, histamine production by Klebsiella pneumoniae, uh, and an incident of scrambled fish poisoning, which is how I got sort of introduced to this. But yeah, it, it's very. Um, in this one was this is sort of like let's let's actually um, uh, demonstrate this in the laboratory. But there are um, some bacterial histamine production, but again from tuna fish, not, not specific to this. So, right. so I don't know. So, so what, I mean, what happens to the meat, um, in, in that, and I'll give you the, like, um, y- y- the word that I think is, is important here is decay, right? Like something right. there, there is a gro- like you're going to get off flavors. You're going to get off, um, odors, uh, for this probably, um, uh, depending again, how long this lobster has been dead and how, um, what the temperature of that water is, right? Like that's, and then, and I mean, I would even throw into and how it was, um, you know, how it was killed, uh, and whether there was some other injury or some other illness that was associated with this, with this lobster that, that the stress of being in this tank and having my children like tap the, (laughs) tap the tank and try to make their, their tent, their, not their antenna move or whatever the, 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 the uh, correct biological term is, um, (laughs) don't email us. Don't. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Don't, but, but you know what I mean? Yeah. But but the the lobster died for a reason, right? Yes. and again, again, the question is: So, what is a restaurant to do with this in this situation, right? And and I guess maybe you know, and and the answer, the extreme answer would be: Well, you throw away the dead lobster, you throw away all the live lobsters, and you clean the tank and you start over, right? But that's prob- that may be an overreaction. But but how do you decide on what an appropriate reaction would be? And I, you know, this this is one where I just don't think we know. And and what's the incentive really to find out? <laughs> well, and yeah, and and I'll give you another one here. So this is about the you know. Do Lobster asked us about one dead lobster in a tank. Say I buy three lobsters and I go home, and one died on my way home. Right? Do I throw out the other two lobsters? Is it? Is, are they? Do they all have Ebola? Um, <laughs> lobster Ebola. <laughs> lobster Ebola. Um, no, but you know what? What? What's the? Is there a safety risk, or do I now have a situation where? Okay, maybe that was a sick lobster. Maybe it was just the stress of travel. Maybe it was my kid poking at the box um, on on the way on the way home. Um, and what about the 
that death matters when it comes to safety of the lobster. And again, this is this is something there might be. It's more of a call out to those who listen to the podcast who may be closer to this. I just couldn't find anything in in Google Scholar um, after two or three different tries at this that would suggest that that lobster dying on the way home is an indication that it's unsafe. It's it's more, it seems like it's an indication that it might not taste very good compared well, to the and, other two. Yeah. And the recommendations that you will see everywhere on the internet is you should not eat um, dead shellfish, right? Including um, uh, crustacean shellfish, including molluscan shellfish, right? right? That's, that's, that's the easy answer, but that's not really answering the question that we're, that we're looking to answer. Right. Well, and, and this is, um, I, I, I've got two, well, one um, personal story. Um, so when I was a kid, every summer for like six summers in a row, my family and I went to Prince Edward Island. Uh, that's in Canada. Uh, it is a, a very, a small Island in the, uh, at the mouth of the Strait Lawrence, mouth of the St. Lawrence river. Um, it's in the, I think the Straits of Northumberland or something like that. And, uh, when I was going, uh, when I was a kid, there was no, uh, you had to take a ferry there and it was a whole thing. Like you're on a ferry for three hours You'd meet my, my uncle, um, and my aunt and, and my cousins there. And, and this is what, this is what we did every summer. And we, we would stay in a place, um, uh, on St. on, uh, Prince Edward Island called Cavendish, uh, the, the Cavendish area, Cavendish beach. Um, and, and I'll, I'll tell you that Cavendish beach is not like the beaches we have in North Carolina mm. at all. It, Cavendish Beach is a um, l- let's just call it a uh, it, it's it, it's a it's a beach. It's it's just rocky and and then there's some red clay and it's not you know beautiful area but not like a white white sand hot beach. Um, but Cavendish Beach and I'm googling this place um, and oh, and of course this is like 25. Um, years ago there was a place that we would go to called fisherman's wharf and does it still exist google says it does fisherman's wharf.ca um and this is a home of the lobster supper uh and i'll read straight from their website because uh people listen to podcasts for two guys to listen to read uh straight from websites no visit to prince edward island is complete without a visit to the world famous fisherman's wharf pier 15 restaurant and gift shop in beautiful north rustico pei home of the and don this will make you very excited the 60 foot salad bar um the all you can eat mussels which is all in caps and seafood chatter and the all you can eat mussels is the part that I have a story about. I, I, um, I, I learned at age nine or ten that I really enjoyed mussels, and huh. and I would eat all you could eat mussels, and and this was you know just this. I remember it like vividly going up to this buffet um, and just getting like you know plateful and plateful of, of mussels and and peeling through them, and um, one one year I got a bad muscle. And it wasn't, you know, the clams, mussels, oysters that are cooked. You know, the, you, you've got this rule of, well, if it if the oyster didn't open, right, like it was dead and there would be decay and it's off and it's bad. And this wasn't one of those. It was an open uh, mussel and I ate it. And I the, – the flavor and the taste that I was expecting was not what it was. And I, like, vomited in my mouth as Ooh. it was on its way down. And Oof. then I ran to Oof. the bathroom and I threw up all the all-you-can-eat muscles. And that was Oof. the end of my muscle uh, uh, experience that day, that that year. 
Um, but so where was I going with this? That is the risk, right? So so I'm talking. We're talking here about bad lobster, decayed lobster, a quality issue. Is it going to taste terrible? Yes. In this case, as a nine or ten year old on Prince Edward Island, did I throw up? Oh damn, yeah. I was like, I yacked like right like look right at the table. Um, was it a foodborne illness risk? Probably not. Uh, you know, and could, what could have caused this bad muscle? I don't know. Um, it could have been that it was a dead muscle. It could have been that it was, um, but it was unlikely that it was a temperature abused muscle because now we would have had a whole bunch of, uh, of muscles that were, um, that were batter off. And, and I, as you know, as the rest of my family was eating all you can eat muscles from uh, world famous fisherman's wharf, uh, they, uh, no one else, no one else got, got, no one else got sick from this off flavored muscle. No one else felt nauseous from it. So, right. Right. So that's the well, risk. You- so I, I I I also have a story to tell, um, uh, and this this is this involves a summer. I think one or two summers we we visited relatives um, that lived in Maine, and of course when you're in Maine in the summer, what do you do? But you go to the lobster store and you buy lobster, you buy live lobster, um, and then uh, you cook it. So I still have vague memories of as a child. My this was my father's aunt, so maybe my my great aunt. Um, Taking the live lobster um, out of the whatever the the bag was, the container uh, which had come from the lobster store, and putting it on the floor of her kitchen and watching this lobster scuttle across the floor before she picked it up and threw it in the boiling water. So yeah, that 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 memory has stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, right, right, no doubt, no, no, no doubt. And I and I don't I don't particularly like lobster. Um, not because of that. I just I just don't care for the taste of it. Which I you know whatever people like lobster. I, like lobster. I don't, also don't really care for mussels. On the other hand, scallops. Quite delicious, especially the scallops in Des Moines. I knew it. I knew that. <laughs> and, and you beat me to it. Ah, the scallops in Des Moines are lovely, and they really are. Um, and you now know this, and right? I do. I do. You, I do. You've had, you've I've had been scallops there. in Des Moines. I've had Des Moines scallops. I don't think you were there um, for that. This is. I mean, this predates. Uh, I think the podcast, or maybe we did it early on. But yeah, um, I've had uh, Des Moines scallops, and they're they're lovely. Uh, so anyway, there's there's lobster safety talk. Uh, and, and, and so what I didn't do in preparation for this, cause we were kind of going back and forth was, um, was email. I've, I've got a couple of, uh, seafood, um, uh, folks and you and I have uh, a common person. I, I, you know, I think you, so I would, what I'm going to do in the interim before we record next is, is email Lori Pravarnik. Cause Lori, mm. Lori's awesome. And she would know about this. She will know about the, the food safety risks. And then, uh, former, uh, um, uh, professor here at NC State who retired a couple of years ago, Dave Green. I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to them and see if we missed anything on dead lobster from a safety standpoint. But I mean, dead lobster could be gross, could be fine. Um, but from a safety standpoint, I, I yeah, that's that's yeah. Where well, we're at. and and again, the, I think the key question is: so what is a restaurant to do if they find a dead lobster yeah, in yep. their lobster tank? Right. That's that's what we're looking for is like practical advice practical science-based advice for what to do in those circumstances because because there doesn't seem to be any or if, if it's there it's pretty well hidden from people like you and me that that should know how to look for it yeah and and the regulatory aspect here right right so so and, and um you know Nora nerd is, is i think she's a couple episodes behind so when she gets i'll see her as well um next week but uh, i'll ask her about about this um to see how we would how we would handle this uh here in, in north carolina but i you know i think the answer is um, nothing. You've got, you've got a dead lobster, get rid of your dead lobster. 
um, and and maybe try to figure out if you have a bunch of dead lobsters, what what's causing them to be dead, um, and and if it's only one, um, you know, what, like you said, what do I do with my with my tank? Yep. So good, great. Great question. Oh, oh, oh. so my follow-up uh, for this was Deep Lobster shot us this message yesterday morning, and I was about to um, do some training for new extension agents um, who've, who've re- recently started here in North Carolina. And part of this training was talking about some of the resources that we have and the infrastructure we, we have for our agents. We've, we've got um, over my my 10 years here, I, I track all the questions that I get, and we have a database of Questions and answers and references and um, agents can can use that that database and so I was t- I talked to them about that and then we also have a we run a, a Facebook page a closed group for our agents um, where they can ask questions to um, to me to my group to our other area uh, um, specialized agents that focus on food safety and, and and get sort of like use social media to get you know real time uh, feedback and so at the end of this I said okay here's a question. Um, and I read deep lobsters questions and said, what, what do you do? You know, you're, you're brand new, but you've got these four questions. Um, and there, there was, um, there was a, a glaze, somewhat glazed look over their, over their faces because it was like, oh man, this is the type of question that, that I'm going to get. Like, yeah, this is, <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably. And so then we talked about resources and then, you know, uh, connecting with, with our group and you know, being able to say, okay, let's start with what we have in the database. Is there anything on dead lobsters in the database? No. Um, have we seen anything? We can search the Facebook page. Does this come up there? No. Um, okay. Now, now it's time to reach out, um, to me or to someone else, um, before we get into too, too much Googling on this, uh, and see if we know anything and, and use our network of, of safety folks. And, and so anyway, I use this as, um, as an example, uh, of how, of how to tackle tough, tough questions from, from folks, uh, that are lobster adjacent. Um, so, so there you go. Cool. Uh, where, what do we, we got a lot of, well, not a lot of feedback, but I, I would say a lot of feedback in short, um, in a short amount of time. Yes, we right? did. Yeah. Um, so, so do we want to talk about poop knives or you want to get right into feedback? I want to talk about, uh, let's get, let's save poop knives for the end. Let's get some, let's okay. get some feedback. So, uh, we had, we had an email about, um, pancakes. So, uh, let's see. Um, uh, I only see. Oh, this is this is not good podcasting. Um, yeah. So where's where's our pancake? Pancake, pancake. I think it was on the Twitter. Okay. So. Hmm. All right. Well, let's let's hold off on that. Um, we'll come back. I'll find it while we're doing right, the next. So yeah. One. So exactly. So so this uh, this is from um, uh, Deep Insomnia. Uh, he says. Uh, you can read my message, not my name. Uh, this is a comment on episode 190 with uh, Daniel Jalkett. He says, in regards to washing the inside head of lettuce, are the pathogens from the inoculated lettuce internal to the leaf? If so, are the leaves permeable enough that washing helps rinse out the internal pathogens? Uh, and then he has uh, questions on uh, comments on two more points, okay, um, which we'll, we'll – and we'll, I'll just read all of his questions and then we'll deal with them one by one. Um, on used glasses and bottles, let's say the person 
person drinking is also eating uh, when they're using that container. Let's say the food was a uh, common risk for a non-infectious dose of a pathogen, maybe melon and listeria. Would the backwash and or the saliva around the rim of the glass contain enough nutrients to incubate to a non-infectious a non dose to an infectious one? And then finally, as for money, uh, talking about people handling money, I'd be more concerned with the transfer of pathogens from a sick person buying food to the current uh, to the currency to the cashier in the same way that I wouldn't want my food handler to shake hands with with customers. So uh, point by point. Um, so we, you know, we don't know. We, we know that sometimes pathogens can internalize into the leaves of lettuce. Uh, but the and there's a, a real good um, uh, uh, review article by um, a colleague from the University of Georgia, which we'll we'll, we'll link to on on this. I really think that the general consensus is that internalization is is a phenomenon that happens in the in, you can make it happen in the lab, but it's not necessarily something that's going to happen um, in 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 the real world. So and and if it does happen in the real world, we don't know the extent to which it does. Um, so and, even, and I'll add something on there, or the factors yeah. that facilitate it, right? Like, right. is it? Yeah, right. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And we know we know that if in the lab you can get it to happen, but you have to start with really high doses outside the, 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 the plant and then and then do do something to make those those organisms internalize. Um, so even when contamination is on the surface, so, so think about contamination on hands or on lettuce, right? Washing is not a 100 percent effective intervention. So the rule of thumb that I like to give is that if you wash with water, you get a 90 percent reduction. If you wash with soap and, and water and you rub your hands together, that's going to give you about a 99 percent reduction. So for the microbiologists in the audience, that's a, a one log reduction and a two log reduction. Um, so washing helps reduce the risk, uh, but it doesn't prevent the risk. Um, if it's internalized, it's going to be harder to wash it off for sure. Um, uh, but, but again, the, the extent to which internalization is really a problem, we don't know. Um, I think backwash uh, beverages and eating foods is, is an interesting one, but I it's in the grand scheme of things, it's not something that I terribly worry about. Now, I guess I suppose you could imagine a scenario where you take a bite of contaminated food and uh, backwash gets into your glass and there's nutrients there and the organism could grow. But but again, that's uh, these are pretty these are pretty, uh, uh, I would say, unusual uh, esoteric kind of uh, events that happen. Like reason, um, reasonably likely to occur, right? Like if we right. use the, that, doesn't, that term, probably probably not. Like could doesn't, we, doesn't, yeah. doesn't match the yeah. Reach that bar. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then in terms about bacterial transfer from money, um, it's, it's you know, this reminds me, I had a, a student for a, a little project do a literature review on uh, bacteria on money. And man, it is a topic that people love to, to research. And there's a lot of data out there on bacteria on money. Um, Again, no evidence that it's ever caused a foodborne disease outbreak. Um, it may contribute to sporadic cases, I suppose, but I think it's a relatively a well, relatively low risk. And yeah, certainly I don't want my food handler handling, mon handling money. I don't want my food worker shaking people's hands. But in the grand scheme of things, these are not super risky things. And, and again, it comes back to uh, what does the FDA food code say? Well, the food code specifies there's a whole lot of times when people need to wash their hands. Um, and in fact, if they actually followed the food code the way it's written, uh, there's a couple of papers out there that show that uh, they would be washing their hands for roughly one third of every shift. So so people are clearly not doing that, which means that they're not following the code uh, in terms of when they should wash their hands, which is, again, mostly I'm concerned about they should be washing their hands under high risks 
scenarios. Like they've been they've been handling raw meat. Uh, they just they just pooped. Um, uh, and again, and if they've got active foodborne disease like diarrhea, I don't I don't even care if they wash in their hands. I don't want them handling my food. I mean, that's kind of my my boilerplate summary on this that I, I seem to be repeating a lot lately uh, in, in conversations like this and other places. So so those are my three uh, uh, reactions to uh, comments from uh, Deep Insomnia. Yeah, and I'm only going to add on to, I've, I've already chimed in on, on the first two a little bit. I'm going to add to the last one, and um, it reminded me of a paper um, uh, from uh, Craig Hedberg and in uh, Minnesota and in, uh, it's related to, and I'm, I meant to get this before, but it's it's related to outbreaks of um, yeah salmonella infections in food workers identified through routine public health surveillance in Minnesota, impact on outbreak recognition, and and, and to me this uh, I'll I'll send this to you for show notes. This paper sort of goes through and says, okay, we're we're going to look at. Um, uh, uh, do some routine surveillance of, uh, of, uh, poop of, uh, of, um, food handlers, and then look at, um, uh, some aspect of, of whether they are impacting, um, outbreaks. And, and so, so reading from the abstract here, uh, there was uh, 5,000 culture confirmed salmonella cases reported to Minnesota department of health. 110 of those were food workers. It was less than one half of the number expected based on the incidence of salmonella in the general population. 20 food workers were, associ- uh, uh, 18% were associated with outbreaks. 12 were involved in nine independent outbreaks of the restaurant they worked identification, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there was something in here just about um, non in, 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 um, non symptomatic carriers of salmonella, and so and what what the money thing. I'm trying to think about like okay, there's lots of dirty money out there. Um, we don't see a lot of pathogens, but maybe the, maybe there are. There are a lot of transactions that happen. There are a lot of sick workers or even asymptomatic workers, and we just haven't seen the outbreak, and so. Thinking about like the facilitation of transfer from poop or um, or vomit from someone's hand to the money, then back from the money to someone else's hand, and then back from that hand into um, into your mouth. There's a lot of dilution factors there, and for a pathogen like norovirus, that's probably um, you're probably going to take care. Like that, it may meet. Uh, may lead to infection regardless of those those dilution factors because there's so many virus particles. But when it comes to salmonella or some of the bacterial pathogens, I just don't think money is a great vehicle for, for risk. Like, and it's certainly not as good as um, you know, as hands directly to food, and it's certainly not as good as contaminated food, right? Like, like if we're trying to lay this down. So if I have limited number of resources and I really need to focus on hand washing. Um, I'd much rather someone wash their hands after they use the restroom, uh, before they touch food. And I'd much rather them wash their hands after they touch raw, raw food before they touch ready to eat food. And if I have to give one up, I think it's money that right. Yep. Like a hundred percent right there with you. Yep. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that, that, that's, um, that, that's where it's at, right? Like, is it, is it a theoretical risk? Yes. Have we seen public health impacts? No. Um, and would I build a, an entire food safety program around handling money and washing hands? Uh, no, I'd, I'd focus on something else. Agreed. Cool. 
Um, okay. Oh, and, and, the, and the name of the person I couldn't think of uh, was Marilyn Erickson. Uh, she's retired from University of Georgia, and she wrote an article called Internalization of Fresh Produce by Foodborne Pathogens, and that was published in 2012, and, and we'll link to that in show notes. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little bit out of order here, um, and it, because we – one of the focuses of the last last episode um, was around uh, one of the, fo- the foci was around my feet um, for sure. <laughs> well, which and we and we should definitely talk about this. So apparently, Ben, uh, the the key to you getting Twitter followers is for me to tweet about episodes and then mention your feet uh, because apparently that uh, that got you some Twitter followers. It did. It did. It was it was the weirdest thing. I should have taken a screenshot. You put it up and 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 you know the, in the. Uh, um, he said something about in this one, we're talking a bunch about Ben's feet. Um, all of a sudden it was like four new people immediately started following me. They're just looking for podcasts where people talk about their feet, which is a bit, bit, uh, I mean, to, to each their own. Um, so, so and, and, <laughs> I thought there's anything wrong with that. Oh, no, no, it's fine. I mean, we do, we do what we can for the food safety community and the, and the, and the foot community. Um, so, so anyway, a, a centerpiece of episode 192, uh, was, uh, this, the situation about microbiological testing in a water system where I, I got a little bit involved, um, because the water system, uh, is the, the only water source for an extension center that has a value added food processing facility where businesses are, are in. And so before I get to, um, the follow-up, this phenomenal uh, follow-up that came from a, a couple of folks um, around um, just telling us more about water um, and, and our lack of, uh, you know, I guess, clarifying some of the things that we talked about and, and us being water adjacent. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of follow-up of what, what's happened since. So I had a conversation um, I, I, the, after you and I talked, I, I was able to follow up some more with um, the folks that run the the value added processing facility, and said, "Okay, tell me more about the products that are made there. Tell me about cleaning and sanitizing standard operating procedures. Or is anybody using this? You know, potentially what we would maybe have to classify as non potable water for hand washing before touching any of these products. Or do we have no bare hand contact? Are we using different different?" Um, uh, different things. Are we are we using different methods to um, uh, to focus uh, on risk reduction um, in this in this situation? And um, and so over some with some back and forth, I got a list of uh, of products and know a little bit more about it. And and now we're asking some some additional questions. So I don't have a whole lot to share on that, other than um, overall. I think the risk of uh, of contamination in any of the food that was made there um, is is really really low based on on what you know water not being used in an ingredient for the most part um, and maybe used uh, for cleaning and sanitizing some some equipment or utensils but with a, another compound um, and then um, although used for hand washing that there are other barriers in place. Um, so there's not a lot of like bare hand contact. So that's, that's all really, really good news. But the most interesting part about my, my dealing with this was, um, I, I guess trying to think about how we communicate this risk and what is the risk and what do we see when we have a, 
um, a uh, a positive for E. coli. Um, what does that mean? And 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 how how does someone who's managing a facility um, who who not, isn't doing it on a full time basis, but is is sort of passively doing this um, as a place for for businesses to uh, to come to? How do they interpret results? And so so I went back and forth with the folks that run it. And they had a conversation with the guy who runs the, the water system. And, they, and then they shared with me a whole bunch more test results, which I can't send on to, to everybody um, on this. But essentially, um, there, were, there was more routine testing um, that, that happened. Um, and, and as per EPA drinking water guidance, the, this uh, location uh, for their size and, and where they get their water, they, they test their water on a monthly basis. And so there was a routine test that happened on September 4th, and the previous routine test happened on August 6th. And so, and we can go back, and they shared a whole bunch of historical data saying August 6th and the July test results. And, uh, um, you know, all of going back, in fact, really, uh, I think they shared 18 months, and they were all negatives, negatives, negatives. And so we have this anomaly of one test. And 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 so um, the the... Um, individual uh, who runs the, um, the, the value-added processing from an administrative standpoint made the decision to contact all of the businesses who had used it on um, just the dates that, that there was uh, this negative, you know, this positive test, and then while the boil before the boil water advisory uh, was announced, so so it was a two day period, you know, September fourth and fifth, and then the evening of the fifth there was a boil water advisory. And and that you know that's a that's a prudent decision. That's where we have data, and and that was based on his interpretation of what's out there and what isn't. Is there any reason to think that September third there wasn't a there there was a problem? No, we don't have data on that. Um, and so so then I had a conversation. I was like, you know, I, we don't have documentation that it was potable prior to that date, unless we go back to 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 the last date of August sixth. And and so. I called the the same person that he had talked to who manages the water facility and had a, just a phenomenal conversation um, with a guy. And, and we talked about, um, you know, what the rules were and, and, he, you know, why we, we actually talked, we talked for about 45 minutes on Friday night um, about this whole situation, including talking about Walkerton, Ontario, which he was really familiar with and said, you know, he stays up to, that, up to date on what, what happens in other water systems. And, um, and we talked a little bit about Milwaukee, uh, and the water system there. Like, you know, this is not a person who is just like come into this, this realm. And so during this conversation, I said, okay, here's the situation. We got water being used by food processors. Um, and at this point, I didn't know whether it was being used as an ingredient or not. I'm, I'm just like, can you know? Do we have any way to suggest that this was potable water in between August 6th and September 4th? And and his thought was, um, I don't have any documentation on that. And I said, okay, well, if you don't have any documentation, we don't have any documentation. We should probably tell everybody this. And he goes, Abs- you know, absolutely, he agreed agreed with me um, on that. And so that's that's what we did. Um, but but I. He, he, the the biggest lesson for me there are two lessons i guess out of this if you're if you're running a food processing facility not a food processing company where you own the product but if you're running a, a processing facility and you have 
clients that come in uh, to use this, you, you really have to have someone there who is versed in food processing. Like, and I know that sounds really trite, but there are lots of people that are that that are doing this. Um, you know, they have, they have someone donate some, uh, some equipment. Someone says, I, you know, we'd love to host a, um, a shared use facility here. Um, and, and people do that, you know, out of the goodness of their heart and not really think about what happens when things go wrong. And, and that was like, it's something that I've been on the outside of and sort of said, you know, this, this makes me a little bit uncomfortable, but let's, let's do it until something, until something happens. And in this case, something happened and it's probably very, very low risk to the product, uh, and, and to public health. But the management of this event afterwards, I think surprised the individuals who are running the facility. And so that was the first, the first lesson to me. The second lesson was having individuals who are running these facilities, having some form of, um, understanding about microbiology and inputs and and if they if they're not versed on it and again this isn't something i'm super versed on but when it comes to water just being able to ask the right questions and know what you're looking at and 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 being able to follow through on that is is important um and so so anyway that was that was my my follow-up um we got we got a couple of uh you know back channel texts uh, about it uh, inviting us, uh, and we won't we won't uh, name any names. But someone invited the two of us to come tour a, uh, um, a, a a water treatment facility, which I would love to do. And I think I'm, I tried to put us on, into a place where we would visit this individual, invite them on the on the podcast, and then visit uh, some some water treatment so we understand more about it. Um, and I, I think it was met with. Um, I don't think I, I wasn't very it wasn't that it was very positive. I just don't get the sense that it's going to happen. Uh, no, and and here's the thing. What I said um, was, "Hey, you should come on the podcast. Right. That's way easier than us giving a tour of a facility." Uh, and then it didn't seem like they were really interested. So that's fine. Yeah. I mean, they probably don't listen anyway. No, but, that's okay. But yeah. I do. I am. I'm all set to talk about um, the next bit of feedback. And this is our listeners are so fantastic. So this is uh, you can read my message, but not my name. Uh, we'll call this person uh, Deep Water or Deep uh, Deep Sanitarian. Um, so uh, the person writes, I'm a senior sanitarian in New York uh, that doesn't get to work with food protection. I deal with drinking water and pools. So episode 192 had me doing a deep dive into water-related yes. links and news accounts of the positive E. coli sample. So, oh my gosh, we Ben, we have the best listeners. So, I huge huge shout out to this listener. It's a very detailed message with lots of links. So, um, and we'll 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 link to all of these links. So, uh, uh, they they talk about uh, total coliform group is used as an indicator. Um, there's a, a brochure that they use, um, uh, which is a link to a uh, cold alert test, which is available from a company called IDEX. I mean, it's a commercial product. Um, but, but again, it, it, it's, uh, you know, people in New York state vouch for this, uh, in terms of people that need to do water testing on their own wells. Um, uh, and there's another link, uh, from, uh, New York, uh, department of health on, uh, uh, drinking water and coliform. So, uh, 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 listener goes on to write, we use a presence absence test for coliforms and numeration method for water expected to have coliforms like beach samples. Um, again, as we talked about drinking water should have, uh, no coliforms, no detectable coliforms. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency requires that suppliers test their water for coliforms under the revised total coliform rule. 
Um, people would be surprised at how few coliform samples are required. Eh, not well, you and I wouldn't be surprised, but people might be surprised. Um, and again, there's a link uh, to an EPA uh, document, and uh, the, the, um, the listener writes uh, the table on the second page, gives that information. Um, Going on, uh, listeners continues, um, even if we were sampling every day out in the system, we wouldn't know of an issue instantly with coliform tests because of, it takes time to incubate those samples, right? This is the nature of all microbiological testing. You don't have answers right away. You have to wait for the bacteria to grow unless you're using a molecular method, but uh, that those those still do sometimes take time and, again, are not, not always as accurate as the uh, culture-based methods. So um, because these samples are in the field, not everyone has the luxury of dead dedicated sampling taps. We use places we can get in and out of quickly that don't mind us stopping by monthly, right? So there's a practical aspect of how you do the sampling. Um, uh, okay. So looking at the details now about uh, your situation, Ben, when the first E. coli was located, the sample name was WWTP, Wastewater Treatment Plant, no E. coli there. But as samplers, we would also take precautions to flush the tap, remove the aerators, place the cap of the container on the counter with the lid up, make sure the water doesn't touch anything. Again, just good, good yep, yep. aseptic biological technique. And again, there's a link to an EPA uh, document on how you collect water samples. Um, we're trying to collect a representative sample, uh, not that specific building or tap. Of course, no one likes to second guess the lab tech either, but they have other samples they're processing along with occasional spike samples. So, you, yeah, again, you want to make sure that you don't screw something up microbiologically. Um, uh, regarding field chlorine, the sample containers for coliforms include a chlorine neutralizer. They use sodium thiosulfate, which we've also used in the lab for similar reasons. And the samples are kept in a cooler to transport to the lab, don't want to allow residual chlorine or temperature to influence the organisms. Um, when a supplier samples the same location on a regular basis, they have some idea of what free chlorine to expect. So a lower chlorine than expected might indicate a chlorine demand or stagnation in the system. So in other words, something went wrong. A listener also provides a link to the EPA revised total coliform rule, uh, which has rules about resampling, okay, which we'll link to. Um, uh, and so that listener writes, Ben was really nice about not calling out the name of town, um, but <laughs> there is no shame in a boil water advisory. Um, uh, again, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll abbreviate here for, for purposes. Um, uh, the concern isn't uh, usually isn't specifically coliforms. It's the pathogens that may be more difficult to detect um, may also be present. And of course, this is where the indicators get their name, right? The indicator organisms indicate the possibility, not the guarantee, but the possibility that pathogens might be present. Um, uh, and then it goes on, uh, listener goes on to talk about what happens in, in her state of New York. Um, uh, the same entity overseeing the water suppliers is often also overseeing the restaurants. Here is a checklist that New York state has for restaurants under boil water and we'll link to that. Uh, uh, ben, you mentioned Waterton. Um, uh, it was uh, particularly heinous. Uh, this is listeners' uh, words here. Uh, the water treatment operator was false, falsifying sampling and outright lying. Yeah. So that's a bad, bad actor that needs to be punished. We're talking, um, the Walker, Walkerton's kind of the PCA Walkerton. of uh, yeah, exactly. uh, water. Of water, yeah. 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 Um, uh, and uh, again, person writes, uh, name of town, uh, could use some, uh, some help though. When I went, I, when I want to find out quickly about a water system, and this is where the message really gets good. Yeah, yeah. I look at 
annual report on results called either a consumer quality report or an annual water quality report. Suppliers are supposed to prepare the report and post it in the spring of the following year. Uh, Name of Town still has their report from 2017 on their website and not the current report. So slackers there for sure. Um, and I, I'll say too, like I, I get these from from uh, my my uh, borough where I live, and I always look at them because it's it's interesting. Um, so and you all should be getting them. And if you live in the U.S., and you should read them as well. Um, okay, uh, they had uh, let's see, uh, CS. So 2017 report still posted. They also had nothing about the boil water order on their website. It looks like they're using Facebook. I know you probably don't have time to scroll down their socials. Scroll down their socials. I like that. <laughs> but for a community of 888, they have a lot of boil waters due to pressure events. They also announced funding for water improvements. Um, Ben was asking about the water watch gap between April and September. I believe it's because he was viewing only the exceedances, not the entirety of cold form sampling. And yes. this very dedicated listener um, provided us a link to the entire list. And so um, we will we will link to that as well. So, oh, my gosh, thank you. Thank you so much um, uh, to, to listener Deep Water, Deep Sanitarian. This was just an amazing message and it really made my day. Yeah, I know. This was this was awesome. And, and, and again, um, it, it kind of is, is is all about what you and I are, are trying to do with the podcast on is we, we see stuff and we are, are reacting somewhat, somewhat quickly. And, and I, we want to tell stories about what we're, what we're encountering. And by, by no means do, do I ever think that we have all, you know, all the answers and, and are right on this. All we're trying to do is lay it out there. So if we're, if we're missing something or we we've gone down the wrong path that our listeners can feel free to, to send on, um, information related to that. And this, this, um, deep water did just an amazing job on being able to do that and saying, okay, you're, 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 you're 85% right. Here are the 15%, uh, where, where I've got some experience that I want to tell you about. And it's yeah, super, 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 uh, cool. Um, for, for me just, to just to know that, that someone, uh, invests the time to, to listen to us and then do this kind of work in, in, um, circling back with us. So yeah, very, very, very awesome. Um, so really, really appreciate it. Um, so I, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no. And so, uh, I, just like on, uh, on deep waters uh, message, it's exactly right. I did. I have been checking out the, the town of Marshall, uh, North Carolina, which is where it is. And I think I can talk about it now since it's all public and yeah, their uh, their Facebook page has a couple of boil water advisories, uh, as I scroll down the social and, and, and they, they do things like E dash coli contamination, um, not E dot coli. Uh, and oh, that's like, does not inspire confidence. No. And, and, uh, and I'll tell you some of the, the, uh, uh, emails that were going back and forth between lots of different players in this, we were talking about that. We, I was on the receiving end of these, we were apparently talking about the E dash coli outbreak. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, let's let's get these terms right. It's it's not it's not e dash coli. It's e coli. Let's let, we we're, we're we are professionals, kind of managing this, and and it's not an outbreak in in this situation. What, what I'm concerned about is how do we protect these businesses that that have used this water somehow, and we don't know we we have we don't know the quality of it. We don't know the safety of it, right? Like that's the issue. Do we have any illnesses um, that are that are associated with this? And you know, at this at this point, no. Our, our, so let's let's be let's be careful about the terms that we're using because that can spin into a whole other situation where we're we're not 
um, we're managing messaging as opposed to the the event. And and I want I want us to to think okay what what do we need to do right now to manage the event and not not create a problem for us later on. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. So hey, so I'm 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 ready to talk about pancakes if you are. Oh, I'm ready to talk about pancakes, Don. I you, uh, I, I love so I, before we get too much into pancakes, I want to tell you that I love pancakes, and I'm a very good pancake uh, maker, a pancake mm. uh, chef. Um, and that I, I, my Yelp, uh, responses from my children are very high. Uh, <laughs> in fact, um, they will not, uh, they wouldn't, don't let Danny make pancakes cause my pancakes Whoa. are apparently the best. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm all over oh. pancakes, but, but I'm also off of pancakes right now. I'm like, uh, not eating, uh, I'm not eating wheat or grains or, um, uh, any of the, the starchy stuff. Cause I'm, I'm trying to deal with, uh, like, uh, belly fat. So, so I, I, I made a batch of pancakes this weekend, um, for my kids and, and it was all that I could do to not eat the pancakes that I made. So I love pancakes. I want to talk about pancakes, but it's going to make me, uh, it's going to make me yearn for pancakes. Whoa. So you're, uh, so you're, you're off, you're gluten free. Is that what you're trying to say? I'm not gluten free. I'm just gluten avoiding. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, it, makes, I'm, makes I'm, sense. And, and actually, I should. It's not even just gluten. It's like grains. I'm not eating, not eating corn. Mm. I'm not. I'm. I'm trying to. Um. I'm. Uh, I'm trying to eat a whole bunch of like vegetables and and mm. meats and and proteins. Um. Uh, but rice. I'm, no, I'm not eating any rice. I'm not eating potatoes. Any, not eating potatoes. Sweet potatoes is, is as close as I'm. I'm getting, uh, to okay. the world of to the world of uh, potatoes. And so, it, so it sounds like kind of gluten free ish, low carb ish. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Uh, and uh, and who knows? This uh, the, I I don't know how uh, how sustainable it is. I'm I'm like three three or four weeks into it. I'm just I'm being oh. very mindful of my uh, of my wheat and grain and uh, uh, consumption. Cause, uh, cause I got a nutrition specialist here who's awesome. Who I talked to her about uh, things, strategies I can do. Cause I'm like working out a ton and not like seeing any um, changes in my my overall um, you know weight and shape. And she's like, yeah, when you hit about 35, 40 as you <laughs> are, um, your body doesn't process uh, uh, grains and starches in the way that it used to. So this is you now. Enjoy, and it's gonna get worse as you get older. Yeah. So, yep. so anyway, that's where I'm at. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I and I know uh, when I can um, uh, when I can uh, eat less uh, carbs and 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 including including gluten, um, I know I, I feel better and I do uh, <laughs> I do uh, uh, do tend to make tend to make it easier for me to to, to lose some weight. I'm I'm st- speaking. This is now welcome to weight weight safety talk. Weight safety so I've been talk. stuck around around 200 pounds and and just. Uh, up up from my all-time low but still down from my all-time high and uh yeah so anyway sucks to get old i'm the yeah um, and i'm, I'm it's, like it's i'm behind you i'm yeah it's still <laughs> still better than the alternative it's true um it's true. all right could be so, a dead lobster so the, <laughs> exactly exactly um so uh, this is uh, this is from a listener who says, please share all details freely. Uh, and then uh, the message is, please do not share this on the podcast. I will die of embarrassment. So uh, we'll we'll make it anonymous. So this is from uh, Deep Flame, a previous uh, uh, listener uh, email or Deep Flame. Uh, Deep Flame has a bunch of comments, which is why the pancake thing did not did not show up. So so we will we will uh, go through these comments in turn. So um, uh, and and there. They're, they're wide ranging. So first comment, um, 
does our first, yeah, first feedback does our question, does adding acid, e.g. lemon vinegar to oysters help at all? Um, and my answer here, and I'll, then I'll, I'll let you comment. Um, it probably helps a little bit. Uh, we did some research in, in my lab, which I'll, I'll, I'll try to link to uh, looking at ceviche, which is where you quote unquote cook a fish with acid. And we found that it had a good effect on reducing Vibrio that we deliberately inoculated into the fish, but it really didn't have much of an effect on salmonella. And so it's really not a very, uh, very reliable indicator. And then surprisingly, when we went to do this research on ceviche, uh, I was expecting that other people would have looked at uh, validation of ceviche in the literature and, and uh, not, not so much at the time. So, yeah. 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 Uh, next, next on the, uh, I just <laughs> lost it. Where did deep, uh, So next next question. Sorry. Um, yeah, that's uh, okay. Uh, I was just linking the ceviche link. Um, so uh, listener writes: uh, We do not appear to have salmonella in eggs in New Zealand, uh, and they, they link to an uh, MPI.gov.nz uh, document on um, a risk profile for salmonella non-typhoidal in and on eggs. Um, so we don't have we don't appear to have salmonella in eggs in New Zealand. Is eating raw eggs still bad? Um, so I looked at the risk profile, uh, and and what I noted from the risk profile, it says that the survey did not detect any internally contaminated eggs. That's not the same thing as saying there are no internally contaminated eggs in New Zealand. So so I would say the risk in New Zealand is lower than in other countries where they've sampled eggs and they've found internal contamination. So, But there's definitely uh, still some, some risk there. So uh, again, I, I don't think eating raw eggs is a particularly good practice. It, it is a risky practice no matter where you are. Um, the risk may be lower in in some countries. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, when you eat dairy products overseas and get sick, is that a microbiome thing, a resistance susceptibility thing, thing something else? And, and again, my answer, my response is that's a good question. I've not noticed, this is me, Don, talking, that I am particularly susceptible to illness from dairy products overseas. I usually have yogurt uh, when it's available at breakfast, uh, which it is, often is on very nice uh, um, uh, hotel buffets. Uh, I also eat the cheese from those buffets. I put milk or cream in my coffee. Um, have you have you noticed this, Ben? No, no, and I'm I'm not like a, a huge um, uh, a dairy consumption person in the in the first place. So I'm probably not the best best person to ask about this. I don't I don't drink I don't drink milk. Um, I, the most uh, dairy that I that I do get is is cheese, um, and uh, and I do like ice cream. <laughs> Uh, but I don't, I don't routinely have yogurt. So I don't, I don't know. And, and I guess, um, one of the things that, um, that I thought about for this is, um, it, it, the possibility of, um, this concept of traveler's diarrhea, uh, and water being really at the, at the heart of this, um, this concept. And so I'm going to link to, um, a paper, um, in clinical microbiology reviews from 2006 called Prevention and Self-Treatment of Traveler's Diarrhea. And it, it does a really nice job sort of talking about um, the uh, the issues of like um, not not so much being this is a pathogenic, um, you know, uh, E. coli, uh, but it is a different type of E. coli that we may not have been exposed to. And as it colonizes um, our gut system, when you are traveling, it, 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 allow, you know, it, it changes your, um, 
uh, your gastrointestinal uh, uh, setting. So you can you can deal with some some issues, but it's not it's not the same as uh, a um, you know, shigatoxin producing E. coli, um, and it's it's usually an enterotoxigenic E. coli, um, but or an e, or an um, entero aggregative aggregative E. coli um, that causes this. And so, yeah. so, so anyway, I wonder if that is, is our, um, you know, the, the potential source though. It seems like it's dairy, but it may be the water that's in that dairy. Yeah. Good point. Um, uh, next question uh, from the same deep flame. Um, do you have to empty grease traps because they get gross or is there a food safety element? Um, I, I didn't know too much about this. Um, uh, I, I don't have anything to link to, but, uh, a, quick Google Scholar search on the relative, you know, using the right keywords or uh, uh, the best keywords I could find. I didn't see anything. Have you, have you, do you deal at all with the grease traps in restaurants and yeah, insight? Yeah, they're, they're, so the grease trap um, situation is about trying to um, control water flow the most. So, so having, not having a grease trap and then having grease in a restaurant situation poured down the plumbing system leads to the chance that your water, um, you, you get uh, sewage backup or, ah. or backflow into the water system. That's really the, that, that's really the goal. So um, there's a food safety effect, but it's in, it's not because of the, it's, correct. it's because of the grease, but it's not because of the, yeah, it's in, it's in a secondary effect. Yes. So. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, this is uh, – I, I don't know if you remember um, recently, and I'll see if I can find um, a good uh, uh, link to this. But there was a, uh, um, a Fatberg. Do you, are you aware of the fat of a fat, oh, this the fat was, bird this is, phenomenon? This, is, this was this was covered on uh, Dubai Friday, yes. uh, award winning uh, podcast Dubai Friday. Yeah, yeah, featured in in many places. Uh, and so uh, the um, the re- one of the reasons why we have grease traps is to reduce the likelihood of fat bergs. Cool. Uh, yeah, so we'll link to uh, episode uh, 33, The Alp Got em, um, uh, where they talk about Fatbergs. I think that's the one where Max was uh, in the Alps. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, uh, water safety talk. What is, the risk, what is the risk profile on swimming in a pool and putting your head underwater or swallowing some that has amoebic meningitis? Um, and, and we'll link to uh, a resource from New Zealand that basically says um, when you are swimming Swimming um, in geothermal pools, you should keep your head above water. Um, I think the best advice is that if you think a water source may be uh, uh, put you at risk of amoebic meningitis, I suggest that you don't swim in it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and there was there was something I think it was in the most recent MMWR about another ne- uh, Neglaria fowleri um, case that happened recently. Or did you if you read the latest MMWR? Uh, yeah, yeah, yep. And I think that one was related to an illness that was here in North Carolina, wasn't it? Uh, I think it was California. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. H- hot spring water. So uh, California tw- 2018, um, uh, fatal neglaria fowleri meningioencephalitis after swimming in hot spring water, California 2018. A previously healthy boy was admitted to an intensive care unit at a Southern California hospital. So, and uh, yeah, and, and uh, he died. So, 
yeah, be careful out there, kids. Uh, <laughs> don't don't swim uh, in the hot springs. Maybe yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. The the uh, illness that I was uh, um, thinking of uh, happened around uh, Father's Day in 2016. I think it was. Um, and, uh, there was a teenager who visited the, uh, national whitewater center, which is in Charlotte, the U S, uh, you know, training center for whitewater rafters. Um, and, uh, the, the, um, uh, you know, parasitic, uh, um, amoeba, uh, now glaria falari, um, was, uh, was a source and they shut down and drained the water. Um, and then there was just recently, uh, back in the spring, uh, um, a settlement, uh, with the family of that, uh, of that teenager. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess the, like coming back to the, um, to, you know, to the original, uh, um, question here is, um, what's the risk? I mean, if, if, if it's known to be, uh, to be contaminated or, or have this, this amoeba, um, uh, present. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go in, into it. And, and it's something for, um, not just, uh, settings in, in pools or, or hot springs, but, uh, recreational water as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really, it's really, you know, it's really sad. I mean, it, and then we, I think we had a case in New Jersey recently. It's, it's there, it's rare, but man, it's just, it's just, man, what a, what a devastating thing. So, um, all right. Uh, next question. I recently stayed in a hotel. They provided a small carton of milk that I left open in the fridge for about five days. Um, when does this start to be bad food safety culture? <laughs> um, uh, I felt a bit guilty about it, but that it felt worse to throw it out and open a brand new carton. Um, so yeah, so this is, this is, these are these, you know, this, these safety, um, uh, spoilage safety trade-off questions are, are come up quite commonly. Um, as far as, long as the milk was pasteurized and you, and, and the listener didn't recontaminate it with pathogens, um, it was probably safe. It might start to spoil. Um, my, my rule for milk is if it passes the sniff test or it, it doesn't coagulate when I pour it into my hot beverage, uh, then I use it. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's five days is, is fine. Again, I would look at the date on the carton. Uh, we recently had a situation in our house where we bought some cream that was close to the end of its expiration date and discovered pretty quickly when I was pouring that into my coffee that, uh, yeah, it was a past its best, it's past its best by date and it was definitely not best. So, um, yeah. Uh, oh, and then, and finally, uh, almost last question. Um, how safe are those automatic press this button and then you have a fresh, fresh pancake machine. I have a photo. If you don't know what this is, I did not know what this is. And we did get a photo. Um, Bendy, have you, have you ever seen one of these, uh, pancake, uh, photos before? So I have uh, our things. Yeah. yeah okay. And, and I, I've seen this at a, um, uh, so, so the photo that we got was of a, um, a unit called pop cake. And I saw it at a um, at a hotel that we were staying at with the, that I for sure you know I've talked about pancakes a second ago that went with my kids and they have this this push button um, uh, unit where it's like you get um, uh, pancakes sort of sort of immediately and so I'll read from the Popcake website um, it's the uh, machine this Popcake machine is the world's first fully automatic countertop pop pancake making machine. Um, and uh, I'll send this to you and show or in our I've, I've got it. Okay, I got good. it. Um, uh, the patented machine cooks fresh piping hot pancakes that are 97% fat free at the single press of a button. The machine uses single phase standard power supply weighing less than 23 kilos to easily convert it to front of house buffet counter version, which is exactly what I saw with the addition of an optional keypad cover plate. 
Um, first conceptualized in the late 90s by Merrick Smizinski in Sydney, Australia, Popcake is the world's first commercial-grade automatic pancake mixing machine. The concept evolved through extensive end-user trial and endless hours of uh, in-field testing following six years of product development. Mass production commenced in the early 2008, um, and uh, it was uh, designed and developed in Australia. I did not see it in Australia. I saw it here in the U.S., um, but essentially, it's like this. You want a pancake? Here you go. And it takes – it's very, very fast, um, and uh, and they pop out. And I had a question about these. Um, it's kind of like, you know, if go, go to the Popcake website, and you'll see some some cool pictures. It's like push a button, and this conveyor belt pops out a, um, a pancake with, within within a few seconds. Um, and the, the big question that I had, and I had talked to a couple of health inspectors about this um, afterwards, was about the pancake batter. Yep. And and what what temperature if I start these pancakes at the at, at the start you know if I fill up my batter um, mix it can I do it in bulk and and how long does it stay there and what is the temperature that it's held at and um, and w- could I get growth of pathogens and that was the part that I couldn't tell from the product and I still can't tell from the the gallery on how it how it works. Um, I watched a video on the pancake mix, but I couldn't figure out how, how I store it and what the receptacle looks like. And I don't think it's refrigerated, but I could see a situation where my pancake, um, my, my pancake shooter sits on the, um, (laughs) sits on the, on the buffet counter in the self-serve part of the, uh, of the restaurant and no one wants a pancake. No one wants a pancake. And then three hours later, five hours later, someone wants a pancake. But as I filled it, maybe, maybe I didn't do a good job washing my hands. Maybe I sneezed and I got a little staph aureus. And that's what I would worry about is some heat stable staph toxin in pancake batter. Um, and now, yeah. So, so I, I again, I, I tried to, I tried to watch, I tried to learn a little bit about it and I couldn't find, um, anything really, um, really great about what temperature are my, are my cakes, my, my cake batter hand held at. So what did you, what, what is your thought? Did you see any yeah. of this? Yeah. So, you know, this is interesting. And I knew I had talked to somebody about pancakes recently and, and I did, uh, I had two different separate conversations. So one was with a local public health person in Ohio who asked about it. And it's not about the automatic machine so much as the practice, the common practice of when, if you don't have an automatic machine, you go into, you know, some, some, um, you know, American, uh, hotel that has a breakfast buffet. You can make your own pancakes they have, or make your own waffles and they have the griddle right there. And then they have a, a, a an urn uh, or you know a container uh, which has your your mix in it. And the question is, is that a food that requires temperature control? Um, and and then I had an earlier conversation actually with uh, with friend of the pod uh, cast Troy Huffman who uh, was asking the question uh, again from a local public health perspective and. You know, and we did some research. Uh, I'll call it research. We did, had some undergrads do some research a couple of years back, looking at uh, the the the. If you take these, if you reconstitute these batters, and you leave them out at room temperature versus you hold them um, uh, under refrigeration temperatures, what happens to the total plate count over time? Right, because this is a practice that we've we've seen uh, at the university dining halls, and and they they generally will keep them out for for breakfast service, and then they'll 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 dump it. But we did occasionally find a batter that had high counts, and the question was, well, if you if you get high counts, what would the pattern of temperature abuse have to have been to have caused those those high counts? And it turns out, it's it, you know at least in the the batter mix that we 
use in the university dining halls, it takes probably 24 hours out at room temperature or, you know, a significant amount of time, not, not a four hour shift, um, before you get, uh, a, a noticeable increase in the concentration. So, um, and, and I, I did, I did, you know, pull together some, some stuff, nothing I can link to in a website, but basically the risk comes down to what's the pH of the batter, what's the water activity of the batter, and then what's the holding temperature. And if yep. you know yep. those three things, you can run um, some pathogen models, right? Now, there might be uh, there might be salmonella in the batter, uh, but it's probably going to be cooked when you make it. Um, the, uh, your point is there might be staff in the batter that might get in there from, from a, a food worker contaminating or a, a customer contaminating it, and it will make a heat-stable toxin. Uh, been working with uh, consulting uh, on a consulting assignment for a similar problem linked to uh, the batters that are held for battering French fries for commercial operations, uh, where they, they again that these are large production facilities. They don't want to have a they don't want to do a cleanup every four hours. They want to run for extended periods of time. What's the risk? Turns out there's different companies that are managing that risk in you know dramatically different ways. So yeah, so this is an interesting topic. Uh, there's not a lot of published data out there, but uh, maybe maybe some will will come along at some point um i i'm not i'm not a just to close the loop on pancakes generally i'm not a big <laughs> fan fan of pancakes however uh, my lovely wife does make an amazing uh, cornmeal pancake that is uh, is really just sort of nice and rustic and it's got some good uh texture to it because you make it with the you know the corn cornmeal instead of uh instead of um um, uh, 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 like a wheat pancake and it's, it's a real, it's a real good pancake. She hasn't made them in a while, but, uh, but that's a good pancake uh, that I like, but I, I will generally steer clear of the waffles and the pancakes at the buffets, not, not because of safety reasons, but just cause I just don't care for them. Uh, well, good. So, uh, in, in, I, but I've never had your pancakes. You should, I will, I will change that somehow. I might cook them. I might do some gorilla sous vide in the hotel room when I see you in a couple of weeks and make, bring you some pancakes that I've cooked on an iron. Um, please no. Please do. Please do. Yeah, yeah. This that will that will totally uh, uh, send everybody off. Who is always talking? Our, our friends on the internet who talk about uh, hotel and airplane uh, pathogens. Um, so <laughs> as you were talking, I, I did. Um, of course, I looked in all the wrong places for a good um, description of how you make the pancake batter. And where do you look? Why don't you just go straight to the first video on the homepage and watch the first 10 seconds of it, which I didn't do, that shows um, uh, a picture of, uh, you know, pouring water into um, what, I, what I assume was a sealed bag. Um, you know, I pop a, um, a, uh, a cap off of uh, this sealed bag and then pour water into it. Then the bag is, is likely pre uh, populated with pancake mixture, and then I, you know, mix that up, and and so the twenty four hour situation, as you were talking about, I could see that, and again, this is is this a re- is this reasonably likely to occur? I don't know, um, but could I have someone who um, through this like adding water, putting hands on the cap, putting some staph aureus in there? I, I mean, I, I think that's a that's a possibility. And then I, I maybe I'm filling this up at the end of a breakfast service shift, and I just leave the batter in all day, all night. And then the first person who makes a pancake the next day might have a little bit of my staph toxin in it. And I, and I think that would be, that's the, if I like, if there was a likely way to get someone sick out of it, it would be that, but a whole bunch of things have to go wrong for that to happen. One, I've got to introduce the pathogen and then have, you know, it has to be, as you said, what is it the right pH and water activity? My guess is it is, but I don't know. Maybe we're, maybe, maybe it's not. Does that water activity change over time at all? Um, 
um, you know, as it sits there, I don't, I don't know. Um, and, um, and, and, and over this 24 hour period or 22 hours or whatever it is, um, do I, is that enough time for, uh, staff to grow and, and create a, this heat stable toxin? I, I mean, I, I would say that you'd have to win the lottery to get sick from it. Right. And it looks like, and I don't, I'm not going to watch the video now, but it looks like it's a, it's like a, a bag, right. That you yeah. mix it in. And then, and then you, when you're done with that mix, you either throw the bag away or you, you start over again. Right. So, yep, yep. so from a sanitation point of view, there's not, uh, you don't have to clean the machine, right. You probably have to clean right. the, the, the interface, the gaskets, right. But you don't have to clean out. Like there's not a, a, a vessel that holds like that's holding the batter in association with stainless steel that you'd have to clean on a regular basis. Correct. Right? Correct. Yeah. It's, it's similar to like, uh, I get, you know, looking at this, um, a few screenshots. So if you're following along at home, uh, the bag part starts at about nine seconds in and goes to about 18 seconds. And you can see, um, it's, it's similar to like an ice cream mix machine, um, or that, that you would see in food service where it's a bag except, or, um, and this calls back to, uh, uh, some episodes we did a few years ago. Um, the nacho cheese, uh, uh bags. Yeah. I was thinking about that same too. thing, yep. right? But, but yep. here's where it's a little bit different in the, in the ice cream mix and the nacho cheese, I'm buying a pre a boxed product that I, all I'm doing is sticking the nozzle into the dispenser. In this case, I'm buying a product that's not pre-mixed. I'm buying a dry product that I have to add water to. So I've got to open up this um, this this bag, add the water, maybe put, maybe uh, introduce something at that point, um, and then and then stick the bag into the unit, uh, have it um, you know fit to the nozzle, and then squirt out um, onto my my pancake, um, I, you know internal griddle, I guess. Right. And so, and we'll, we'll link to episode 126, uh, deep inside the sauce, deep inside which, the sauce. which, which, uh, uh, according to the show description says after a short recap regarding Ben's travels and fermented food safety, the guys do a deep dive into the nacho cheese sauce link botulism outbreak. There you go. Yeah. So, but so, I mean, similar type of, uh, of, uh, of process, just a little, a little bit different, but good. Yeah. Good job. Uh, deep pancakes. Um, or yeah, that was from deep pancakes, right? No, deep, uh, deep flame, deep flame, deep, deep flame. flame. We, well, you know, the names are, are flexible, Ben. Are. Uh, let's, let's say deep, uh, th their name for this one was, was in fact deep pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Deep pancakes. Um, cool. Okay. What else, what else do we have? Did we just nail all of our, uh, all of our follow-up? Wow. Uh, nonstick pan toxicology. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so this says you can read my message, but not my name. Um, this is, um, uh, deep, deep stack. I don't know. Uh, yeah, deep stack. Um, uh, the, formerly known as deep stack, the, the listener formerly known as deep stack now known as deep pan. Um, uh, he writes at the risk of being the guy who sends you Adam Ragusa videos. Every time food safety comes up, here is a, his new video about the safety of cooking in nonstick pans, including talking to a toxicologist from N I E H S about P T F E and P F O A. Boy, that's a whole lot of acronyms. Uh, there's a mention of ingesting P T F E chips and polymer polymer fume fever. And so this is a YouTube link, which we will put in the in the show notes um yeah so um this is i i didn't watch the whole thing but but thanks to the listener for for sending this um this this i like these videos this guy this guy is is, is good i mean he does a good job he's not overly alarmist um yeah i mean i'm just i'm just i'm real i'm real i'm real interested in 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 this and i and thanks to to deep um 
whatever his name deep, is, deep, deep stack, deep pan, deep, deep pan, deep polymer, um, for sending this. And, and, and yeah, if you, if, if this is your, if YouTube is your thing and you like, uh, shows about, uh, cooking and stuff, um, uh, this Adam Ragusa is, it's a good, yeah. I mean, I'll read the, the YouTube caption says non-stick, non-stick pans are pretty safe. Uh, factories making them are more cause for concern. And I, I would agree with yep. that. There are risks to the workers in the factories. Um, and, uh, yeah. And the rest of it's a commercial for, uh, who's sponsoring his video. So, <laughs> So uh, I'm not yeah. going to read that because they and don't fact, sponsor this podcast. And in fact, they insert into the video uh, the oh, sponsor. Yeah, yeah, they got a little. Uh-huh. Uh, they got a little. So, so when you're making this thing that the sponsor has, um, <laughs> do you, let's. Why, have you thought about your nonstick pants? Um, yeah, yeah. So oh, I, I did I, watch this video. It was it was yeah. it was well done. Okay. Yeah, and I, I want to say too, um, uh, and I've forgotten the name again. I think last time this came up, I texted my wife um, for her to tell me that what the name was, but or no, that was something else. But anyway, um, we have a a, 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 a a blue steel pan, uh, which we absolutely love. And there's another, we ordered a, another one, a bigger sized one. And these I've gotten, honestly, Ben, I've gotten fed up with these quote unquote nonstick pans because they eventually get scratched and yep. they're, then they're not nonstick. And so I'm a uh, cast iron is a good way to go, but these, uh, these blue, these uh, blue steel pans, uh, there's a, again, they're expensive, but boy, I just, I make when every morning when I'm home and I'm making an egg, for myself, I use this little nonstick pan, and it's a just a delight to use, and it it cleans up real nice. Just gotta like like cast iron. You just gotta remember to not not uh, uh, put soap on it, or otherwise you'll have to re season it. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, no, this is uh, it, it's good stuff, and I'm also. Um, we, we have a couple of nonstick pans that we use uh, quite a bit and um, over time have invested in, in more expensive nonstick pans um, because of the flaking issue. And, and just and it's I mean, for me, again, it's it, it, the uh, and similar to um, what Adam uh, Ragusa talks about, the, the bigger issue is a physical hazard and an annoyance of having non, nonstick flakes in my food, which I don't like. Um, so, yeah, good. Thanks. Oh. Thanks again. Yeah, and so and so yeah. Thanks, thanks to Amazon, um, who does not sponsor the podcast, but but I can look at my orders. Um, so the company um, is called Mafter Bourgier, and uh, the one the pan that we ordered is the Mafter Bourgier six two zero zero five frying pan, eleven seven eighths inch gray. Perfect. So so huge, uh, huge fan of um, Mafter Bourget. Mafter Bourget. Um. Okay, couple couple other things that, that came. This there was um, th- this wasn't really uh, a listener feedback, but but someone emailed us about a really nice paper um, that uh, that came out um, in Food Protection Trends uh, in I think it was the September uh, um, edition. September where is it? Peer reviewed article: Adherence of food blogs salsa recipes to home canning guidelines uh, from uh, Catherine or Kathleen Savoy and Jennifer Perry. Um, from uh, University of Maine, um, and so uh, it kind of th- this is something that um, that you and I have talked about. It's something that we we've had a little bit of investigation here um, in my group, looking at cookbook um, uh, cookbook um, guidance around preparing food, um, meat and poultry products, and temperatures. Um, and, uh, we, we looked, we, um, have a, a manuscript that's, uh, that, that's in limbo right now, but from a, a graduate student a couple of years ago who looked at, um, YouTube videos for, um, it, for, um, 
uh, cooking hamburgers and and safe handling practices that are modeled in those YouTube videos. But anyway, this this nice like Pinterest focused uh, um, paper, um, and I'll read from uh, from the abstract and a little bit here from the paper. Um, research examines the adherence of canned salsa recipes on food blogs to recommend home canning guidelines. A tool based on the USDA Complete Guide for Home Canning for Acidified Foods was used by four raters to examine 56 blog posts on home canning of salsa from 43 different food blogs. Um, adherence to the categories on acidification, thermal processing, contaminants, and vacuum sealing were the variables measured. The majority of these guidelines were not included in food blog recipes, average over 70% of uh, across all categories, representing a significant lack of, of adherence. And this is where um, things were um, of particular concern. Majority of foods prepared according to recipes of value were insufficiently acidified, 91%. And very few recipes, 14%, provided information regarding necessary, necessary adjustments for altitude and processing. So when this came in, you and I also were having a discussion with um, uh, with a listener uh, podcast in front of the podcast, who I won't call out because I didn't. We she didn't uh, say, "Hey, talk about this on the podcast," but she'll know who it is. Who asked um, you and I about um, the safety of acidifying, not acidifying tomato products? Um, and I got, and I don't know if you had a conversation with her about it, but I got the sense that she was somewhere like at a family <laughs> spot, yes. and someone was yes. canning, right? Right? She yes. did this. This is me just giving, just yep. reading between the lines. Yep, I think. You're, you're yep. on it. Yep. So, someone was canning uh, tomato products and was not acidifying. And and let's step out of this, right? You and I are really close to this. We work with um, the great Elizabeth Andrus at University of Georgia, um, who runs the National Center for Home Food Preservation. And and and, and in short uh, short summary of where we're at with tomato foods, tomato based foods, is that historically we had we were we were growing and consuming. Um, high acid varieties of tomatoes, or and, and so these these tomatoes, when canning them, were were above four point six. We're providing a, a, a product that was going into a jar that was above four point six. Uh, um, sorry, sorry, that was not above. That were below four point six, and so high acid, low low pH. And that below 4.6 was a threshold where we could control the, the growth of Clostridium botulinum. And so we're using uh, we were using the the product itself, the tomatoes itself, to control that that growth uh, through acidity. Over time, um, over the last thirty or so years, the the varieties of tomatoes that we consume in the U.S. have have shifted towards a lower acid tomato. And that lower acid tomato is based on our palate, um, based on um, and going to uh, old man food safety talk again, like like you and I, um, uh, based on people getting heartburn and not eating acidified foods as, uh, as much, and um, you know the the the, uh, the um, increase in prevalence of antacids, and and so tomatoes being called out as as a trigger for that. So um, the the world of of tomato breeding and tomato production has has led to lower lower acid varieties, and so. As a result, um, the product that goes into um, into jars and then is sealed, um, and you know we, we create this anaerobic environment um, may have a pH greater than four point six, maybe four point eight, maybe five, maybe five point two. I'd like a, whatever it takes. I feel like an auctioneer, um, and. Uh, and so, so, so there's a, a, a somewhat easy way to manage this. It's a, with with tomato products. Um, 
they are um, National Center for Home Food Preservation, USDA Guide to Home Canning, um, to which uh, Elizabeth pro has provided uh, leadership and editorial um, uh, advice and, and recipe development too, uh, advises if, if you're going to make, instead of worrying about what the pH of your tomatoes are, and if it's low acid or high acid variety, which it could be both, add a little bit of acid, whether it's citric acid, vinegar, or lemon juice to acidify those tomatoes or those salsa products or whatever it is. And so, so the, the question that, that, that these researchers uh, from Maine looked at was, well, what does it look like if I go to the internet and just find you know, a good salsa recipe? And what they found was um, there's a lack of, uh, of mention of um, acidification. And and so as we talked with, uh, or as I went back and forth with, um, with friend of the the show who asked about this, who saw some non acidification happening in the wild, um, you know, she asked, well, what's the risk? And and I, you know, to me, it, I think it's low risk because there's going to be some acidity, and we don't, and, you know, there's going to be a pH that we're, we're going to get close to um, uh, the, the threshold, and and I say it's really low risk because. We haven't seen I, – I would say that acidification of tomato products, if we look at um, some of the surveys that Elizabeth and, um, and Elaine DeSaw have, have done and Judy Harrison over time, I think that's an area that people lack um, in even in self-reported on acidification. And we see all these recipes out there. I, I think it's one of these, is there a risk? Yep. Um, have we seen Ill botulinum outbreaks linked to tomato products? No. I mean we're, we're seeing botulinum – um, uh, issues related to low acid foods that are that there's no acidification that are canned using boiling water bath or no you know, or no processing. Um, so so there's there's a there's a risk here as there is with with all foods, but I would I would say that um, it's not something that we have a a, a huge public health um, uh, result. Would I if I'm making tomato sauce in my home? Am I acidifying tomatoes? Absolutely. Um, it, uh, and why? Because I don't think it changes the taste, and it's so easy to do. I don't want to play that that game of uh, of uh, of not uh, reducing my risk. But we haven't seen the public health outputs of this. And when it comes to botulism, um, it's not a it's not an illness that goes underreported. You know, right? Like you for the for the most part, it may go on undiagnosed initially. But once we um, you know we, we don't see a lot of foodborne botulism um, of that the, that is out there. Um, improperly canned foods and pruno uh, make up the the most. If we take infant botulism out of it, um, and uh, and and I can't think of any tomato dishes um, that that have been linked to this. So so that's my that's my thoughts. Yeah, and so the um, so yeah, it's it's a risk. It's probably not a high risk, but uh, best to best to acidify. Um, just a couple of things to add. Um, in my texts with uh, the listener, um, uh, she says I managed to sneak some lemon juice into a batch. I'll bring those home with me. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing that we'll we will link to is there's a paper. So this this we our knowledge of uh, tomato pH being higher than uh, previously thought actually goes back quite some time. There's a paper from 1977. Um, uh, by uh, Jerry Sapers uh, uh, of uh, USDA, yeah. uh, uh, and, and but but this is from from many years ago. He's, he's since retired. Um, uh, the title of the paper is "Tomato Acidity and the Safety of Home Canned Tomatoes." Um, uh, Fifty-eight cultivars of tomatoes were screened for the occurrence of high pH fruit. Although large differences in pH were found between and within cultivars, no pH values high enough to permit the growth of Clostridium botulinum were attained. Um, 
Uh, let's see. The, the data show that small fruited, light colored and new cultivars are not low in acid, as is commonly believed. A few high pH data points, pH greater than 4.7, were associated with specific cultivars, locations, and conditions over ripening. The response to some higher pH cultivars to, acid, to acidulation with citric acid was determined, and a linear relationship between pH and added acid was found. So th those data were used to evaluate several methods of acidification recommendations for home canners. And so, so there, are, there are recommendations that uh, you should uh, acidify, and, and it's based on some science that was done back in 1977 and was published in... Uh, I believe the the journal Hort Science. Awesome, cool, good, good, good poll, Don. Well, you know, I knew it was related to some research that my colleague Tom Montville did when he was at USDA shortly before joining Rutgers, and and he actually cited the Sabres article, so I was able to get to it by uh, triangulation or or by you know following the references as 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 you do. What's your what's your Montville number? One, right? <laughs> Bye. Well, so I've, I've, I'm trying to decide whether I've, I I don't know whether I've published more papers with Montville or with, with, with without, Montville's daughter. No, yeah. no, with his daughter. I, I, I published with uh, T. Li Montville and, and R. Montville, R. Tom Montville. and Rebecca both. Yes, yes. Neither of them listen, but uh, both uh, both uh, food safety legends. And it's the funniest thing was when people talked to Tom about the great research that he did on uh, hand washing uh, with me. <laughs> uh, and and it, it wasn't it wasn't with uh, with he's I guess he's he's at least indirectly responsible right right <laughs> see us her father so. did he ma he made an iafp member he should get a ribbon <laughs> he should get a ribbon oh i don't think she's an iafp member these uh, days but anyway a retroactive uh ribbon for that um good stuff hey so uh i mentioned this um i've got a i got a hard, hard out in a few minutes yeah. so uh unless there's anything uh anything we didn't get to let's uh let's call it a show no, sounds good. I've got I've got titles. I've got links. I will put everything in the Dropbox. Uh, it's this one is yours. This one is mine. Um, I'm going to edit this on a on a on a flight tonight. Nice. Yes. Um, so yeah, throw them in. And uh, as always, Don, it is a, a pleasure chatting with you. I will get to do this in person with you uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to to that. Um, and um, yeah, so that's uh, another episode of Food Safety Talk. Bye. Ooh, bye.
Yeah, so I'll get this. I'll get this for you right now. Cool. Um, and we got. Yeah, so I'm. I'm very curious what you think about what you think about your flight, um, because the at least one of the times and maybe two of the times that we flew to Hawaii, the flight crew on on United, they just didn't really seem to care about the customers. <laughs> I and I'm just wondering, it's like. It's just because people are going to Hawaii, so they're all just really happy, and they, yeah, can, yeah. they can get crappy service. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to hear. So that could be that, okay. I'll let you know. I'm flying. Del- we're okay. flying Delta. So uh, okay. And do you have direct flights to from? No. So I, so what we're doing is a little bit, little bit fun. Um, we're I'm we're all flying to L.A. tonight and staying there because I had these meetings that I had to do today, so I couldn't uh, leave. Right. And then instead of just flying all day tomorrow and getting there late. Um, we're like, you know what, why don't we just get as far as we can tonight? So my, so Danny and the boys already left. Um, and I will, I, my flights tonight at eight, uh, and then I'll get to, um, LA, I think it's about midnight. And then we, we, you know, spend a, you know, five hours sleeping in a hotel room right by the airport, uh, and then start a new day tomorrow. And then we'll be in, in Hawaii. I think our flights at eight o'clock tomorrow morning and we'll be in Hawaii by, by midday tomorrow. Um, yeah, so we, we've yeah. we've done we've done two different ways. Uh, first way was um, uh, changing. No, did we change? I don't remember. Oh, maybe it was a trip to Australia where we changed in San Francisco or LAX, and then we missed the connect. I think that's what that was. But anyway, um, direct flights are the way to go. But but this makes sense. Um, yeah, and have fun sleeping for five hours in the airport hotel. Yeah, no, it should be it should be okay. I mean, and then I I just think it's more about like getting the kids a little bit of sleep oh, instead yeah. of going the whole way. So all right. Yeah. Um, all right, I gotta go. Talk um, to you later. Bye bye. Oh, sh- oh. Uh, oh uh, re- next next episode, next we, recording. I'm next recording. Um, I'm gonna see you. Uh, right? we'll, and we'll do it then. And we'll do it then. Yeah. So I'll, sounds we'll, good. Yeah, we'll figure it out after that. Sounds good. Okay. Safe bye. travels. Thanks. Bye. bye.